Welcome to the Band of Brothers podcast. Our current series is entitled The Roles of a Man. We are led by Don Mutton, the singles minister at Houston's First Baptist Church, and Eric Reed, the minister to men and married young adults at Houston's First Baptist. We're glad that you're joining us, and we hope you have a blessed day. Men are, are similar, but we also have some differences. And those experiences, for some of us, we can be broken by overwhelming good things in our life can break you. Uh, Success can break you as much as failure can break you. Uh, getting married can break you as much as getting divorced can break you. You just don't know what's going to happen. But in our lives, whatever role that we've been in, whether it's a single man, a married man, divorced, a father, a son, a brother, whatever it is, there are certain things that God desires to see in our life and that He desires to see among us as we relate to other men. And whether or not we're married that he desires to see us live out in our culture and in our society. And our hypothesis that we sort of operate on, and some of our hypothesis that you probably heard Don talk about was that, that as the men of a society go, so society goes. Uh, If you show me a really, really strong family that's growing and healthy and strong, I'm going to look in that family and you're going to see somewhere in there a patriarch in that family that is a strong man that had principles and values and courage and lived those things out. That doesn't diminish the role of a mom. A lot of us have had really great moms in our life. A lot of us maybe haven't, but there's a great role for women, but we're talking about roles of a man, and God has created every man to be a leader, and what that leadership looks like, we're going to talk about over the next four or five weeks. I'm, I've got the, uh, the fancy big, big mic thing. Yeah. We also believe that the church, that as the, as the men of the church goes, so goes the church. And so today we're going to jump in a little bit and look at what do most women want out of relationships with men? And we're not talking just dating relationships. We're talking about in our society in general. What are some of the lies that have maybe taken and confused that for us as men? And then we're going to be moving more and more towards some of the principles. And I know Don unpacked some of them last week, but some of the principles that whether we're married or single, the principles are true in our life. We'll hopefully find some ways to apply those in the church, at work, where we live, in our families. And then at, at some point in time, if we are married and God allows us in that marriage, then as a husband, how to apply those things as well. I want to pray right now, and then we'll get started on, I think it's page five. It's where we're starting off, I believe. Um, Father God, we thank you for this day. Lord, I, I thank you for uh, quietening the air vent right there. That's amazing. I don't have to shout. Um, God, you're good. And, and we as men, I know at times I, I pull away and I try to do everything on my own. And I just figure it out myself. And God, I know that my life has been changed when I, I get before you. And I just confess that I have a need for you. And so God, right now I say I, I need you in my life. I need you to guide me and direct me, give me wisdom, give me strength. And Lord, I pray that same prayer for every man in here. I thank you for the time they're investing. Uh, God, there's a lot of things that a man can do in our society other than go to something about the roles of a man. And so I pray that for every moment spent in here, that God, you would work in their heart in a new way and you would create something totally new in each one of us through the next four or five weeks. Uh, Lord, we love you. I thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The, the, The study that we're doing is called Roles of a Man. And on the very front of that, the book... It says it's a topical study, okay? So we put that out there because what we're not doing is we're not going through one big block of Scripture every week, and we're telling you the Hebrew word means this and the Greek word means that, 
And what we're trying to do is to take the big umbrella of Scripture and a theme of Scripture, of, of manhood, and we're trying to pull verses along the way, and we're, we're giving those to you in this, in this material. And if you look at the end of page four, it said relevant Scripture. And every section is going to have some relevant Scripture in it. How many of y'all, and, and this is not a, a check to see who's good and who's bad, but how many of y'all actually went home, you read through these verses, you spent a little time with it, you maybe prayed to God to help me understand it. Anybody do that over the last week? We should have put money on this one. I, 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 should have put, I don't know many men that would have done that, okay? I want to encourage you. The Word of God changes lives, and the more you get in it, the more you give opportunity for God to change your life. A godly man won't be fashioned totally away from the Word of God. The Word of God challenges our thoughts, challenges our values, challenges our priorities in life, but it also promises to change us. That's one of the promises of Scripture. So when we do put relevant scripture, don't look at it as dreadful homework. Look at it as I'm going into the gym. I'm getting ready to do some, some weightlifting. And I'm going to do about three or four sets. And this is what I'm lifting. I'm letting scripture be my trainer. And I'm saying, God, teach me what you want to teach me. Show me what you want to show me. If there's something I need to learn from, help me learn it. If there's something I need to turn away from, Help me turn away from it, but don't leave me as the same man. I want to be your man. So in these verses, I just want to encourage you this week, over this week, please just, even if it's grabbing one a day and it's one verse and you read one verse in a day and say, God, I, I don't know what in the world I'm supposed to get out of this, but I'm just going to read it for you and I'm going to trust you. I'm going to spend three minutes. I'm going to read this and pray to you and that's it. If you've never done that before, that would be a good step on the right road to explore this idea of manhood. Well, let's talk real quickly on what, on what women want. And uh, if I were to ask you in our society, what do you think women want? What, what would you say? Security. They want security? Well, I got you. I got you. All right. you got, okay. They want security? What else? Provider. They want a provider, somebody to, to, to bring it home, right? Unconditional love. Unconditional love. Does that sum it up? Is that, is that pretty, y'all comfortable with that? Security provider, unconditional life. It's pretty good to me. I think we can go. Simple. Oh, good. good Joel? I would say too probably some sort of leadership, spiritual leadership, at least a Christian. Yeah, and, and, and I think these things are all part of this. How, how you provide and what you provide in security and unconditional love and all that qualifies you as a leader. And our, our hypothesis here is most Christian women don't want to be dominated. They don't want to be dominated. They don't want to be bossed around, pushed around, and shoved down. And they also don't want to dominate. They really, truly don't want to control every moment of your life, even though it may seem like that or look like that. What, they, what they're asking for in their heart is they want to be led well. And so that's the blanks there at the bottom. Instead, women want to be led well. And our picture for leadership in Scripture, the clearest picture of leadership that we have for a man is who? Is Jesus Christ. 
Now, there are people that have painted and made movies of Jesus Christ, and he's got long, flowing hair, effeminate voice, and he wouldn't dare bend a daisy, okay? That's not Christ of Scripture. Christ of Scripture cleaned an entire building out in anger because they were mocking God. That, that, I, I picture somehow he could strike fear into people, okay? And he wasn't such a big guy because they still had to have Judas go up to him and kiss him. So they could have said the six seven guy with huge biceps or the blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy. No, he looked like any man, but he had a character that was out of this world. And a biblical man is a man, it doesn't matter what we look like, we all look different in here, and that's absolutely by God's design, but there is a strength of character that God is wanting to forge and fashion in each one of us. And so, in this, that gets let out there. And Don, do you want to speak on the feminist movement a little bit on that, or...? Yeah, I got uh, all kinds of stuff. Let me uh, kind of go this whole route. Um, if you take the idea of the feminization of the church, you would say that here's the way we should act. And one of the difficulties with feminizing, this feminizing stuff, is that we don't like to fight with that. We're not going to, we're not going to fight. A, Pastor Greg says, uh, "Buck doesn't fight a doe," kind of deal. There's a point of that in which we say, "Well, we don't want to fight with it. How do we deal with this? How do we? If someone's saying this is the way it is, or this is what you should do, or here's how we should act." How do we have that interaction? And so I think as we walk through this, I think this will give you some principles. And we say, I have a strong mom, by the way. She's not a feminist in any way. She raised four boys, uh, a judge, a preacher, myself, and a doctor. Okay? She, uh, she can out-talk us all. She can, uh, she can put us at her place easily. Uh, my dad, though, at the same time, is a more of a calm guy, kind of quiet guy, now fairly unassuming in many ways. He was a welder and a boilermaker by trade. And as he did those things, he... Uh, though understood also kind of biblical principles. And so things like mom was very good at managing finances. She was good at it. And so he said, yeah, go ahead and do that. But whenever they had a, a back win, whenever it was more than $20, they would discuss it before money was spent. So they would have a discussion about that. Um, when did big decisions about what his boys could do, not do, where we're going, all that, there was always a discussion that took place. I oftentimes would come into the house and hear my mom and dad my dad's voice is kind of a little lower, and he would kind of rumble and would wake us up in the morning, which we didn't like. But he would also, at nighttime, we'd hear he and mom praying and him leading us in prayer. When, we, when uh, things occurred in the house, my mom would have an opinion, no question about it. She would oftentimes say, well, Eldon, I know what I think, but honey, I'll wait for you. What do, what do you think? You want to discuss this first? And he'd oftentimes say he was a think-to-talk guy. My mom was a talk-to-think person, but she would defer to him. And he would just simply, my mom would sometimes start going too quick, and he'd go, honey, I think we need to talk about this first and pray about this first. And he'd stop the conversation, move that conversation to a better light, in a sense, and move that out of the family discussion and more for he and her to talk about. Uh, my dad did not put her down for being gifted, for having, a, in a sense, some real great skills and gifts. But at the same time, he was not put down by it himself and say, you got these gifts, so I'm down here, I'm so served because you can now talk me. He would simply say, Hey, let's not do that. So when we walked home, this is how it worked, when, at the Mutton household. When uh, mom was home, we would be uh, yelling, screaming, hollering, and she'd be chasing us with a flice water. This is back in the days before uh, political correctness, and you could beat with the flice water. You could beat you could do that. <laughs> and so sometimes it would be with the flice water side, and sometimes with a little metal handpiece. Remember that little metal side of it? And she'd whack us with that. But I used to think it was quite fun to have her chase me. I'm not sure why, kind of number three or four boys, something's really wrong there. But I would have her chase me around the house and think it was quite entertaining. 
she would say, you could give me a nervous breakdown. And in my mind, I think, huh, I wonder what that would look like. Rather than, oh, you poor thing, it didn't, somehow didn't have any empathy inside of me. But I think, huh, I wonder what that would look like. My dad would come home, and my mom would a lot of times meet him at the door and say, you need to go take care of Don. And then at that point, dad would say nothing, walk in the room, and I'd oh, Don, I'm so sorry, no. And I would just be because I know the dad at that point was going to be taking charge of that. More verbal does not mean uh, stronger. Less verbal does not mean strong. We'll talk about that. I think there's a great part of this in which we create an atmosphere, whether we're more silent or we're more verbal, whichever way we might be, that we create an atmosphere just by our presence. And also, here's something else that's really cool. I think by the God-given role that you're given, by God's nature, He wants us to take that lead, to be the one who really controls that. So I think we don't have to fight the feminization. I just think we have to be men. Instead of trying to put somebody else down and say, well, we've got to push down feminism, I think we just raise up to do what we're supposed to do, and I think what will naturally happen is girls will respond to that, ladies will respond to that, and they'll go, oh, and again, I just don't like fighting with my wife. I don't know about any other married guys. I just don't like fighting with a gal. It just doesn't, somehow it seems wrong. And so, but at the same time, I can make my point. I can do that in a way without raising my voice, screaming and hollering, and joining in with the, the, the fray. So... Eric can go on a riff on feminization anytime you want him to go on that riff, and he's really good at it, too. The, uh, well, you're good at that. You've done a good riff. I've done good riffs on that. Now, I think the uh, main deal I wanted you all to say is in our society, I think leadership and domination have come to mean the same thing a lot of times, and biblically they're not. And, and so I want you all to be free to read. write that quote, quote down. That's, that's an Eric Reed original right there. But listen to that. Say, say, say a statement again. That, that leadership and domination in feminism, they brought those two together to say that if a man is leading well or leading, he's dominating and you're being dominated. So they tried to reject all forms of leadership as a form of oppression. Biblically, leadership and domination are not the same at all. That you lead people toward freedom, you lead people toward blessing, you lead people toward a better life. And I don't know what woman doesn't want freedom, blessings, and a better life. So the leadership we're talking about is not domination. And I think it fits the, the need that a wife has. It fits the need that ladies have. How you court and how you date. You're either pushing them forward toward Christ or you're dominating them. And you're controlling them and you're pressing them down. So I just want you all to have the, the, the freedom to understand that when we say leadership, we're not talking domination. We're going to unpack what that looks like and how you do that. Um, on the next page, it talks about rules, laws, and principles. And, and I think, and did you get into this at all last week? Yeah, we talked a little bit about it, but not just, just short. Okay, real, real quickly, when, when you think of rules or laws, think about Ten Commandments. These are inflexible, and that's the, the blank in here. They're inflexible demands or commands that God has given us, and they apply to all people at all times. And typically, they're moral in nature. They're moral. They're not a preference. It's a moral thing, whether that's murder, stealing, adultery. I mean, these are non-negotiable items here. They're not optional. So they're, they're moral in nature. They're not optional. Everyone should abide by them. And so the big thing to remember is that rules are inflexible, and they apply to all of us. Think about this in terms of football. There's rules to the game, right? Well, give me some rules of football. Inflexible, apply to everyone. 
Where's somebody? Thou shalt not no break, no holding. No holding, okay. Tons of them. Field goals, three points. Field goals are always three points. Never more, never less. Got to go between the uprights. You gotta catch it inside, gotta catch the ball, and your two feet, two feet have two to be feet down inside, on one foot inside again. You go, yeah. There's an out of bounds, there's an inbounds, there's a line that says this is a touchdown, this is points, this is not points. There are rules to that game that are inflexible. What are, what are, what are rules that are inflexible with God? We mentioned them a minute ago. In life, what are those inflexible rules that we have? Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, definitely. Anything else? Believing in Jesus. Salvation through Christ salvation. alone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of laws that we live underneath that maybe in another country would be very different, but, but they're laws nonetheless that we operate under. Anytime you break a law or what we're calling this as rules, there will be consequences that come in one form or fashion. So it doesn't mean it comes immediately, but they will come. And that's because God is a faithful judge for all of us. The principles that we're going to talk about, and and those are all around us. And in football, we'll get back to that analogy in just a minute, but there are tons of principles in football that we can talk about. But we can choose to agree with a principle, like defense wins championships. We could agree with that principle and build a football team around it, right? Or we could defy it and say no offense wins championships and we're going to have the most high-octane offense we could have, and you build your team around that. And people do this all the time. That's why they're different coaches of different styles. But for all of them, they abide by the same rules. They implement some different principles. And what we want to put before you is, is there are principles in life that God has given us about manhood that will separate an average man from a great man. Uh, a man that just doesn't really make impact in the world, doesn't lead well or anything, and then men that really do in that. The um, idea the, of principles, yeah. let's go that step farther. What are some principles in football? Let's go ahead and finish that analogy up. What's the, what's the principles of football? Whoever scores the most wins. That's a rule. That's a rule. <laughs> we said one. Defense wins championships. Uh, st- you could you could say establish the run. You know, the pass. special teams helps win championships. Huge mm-hmm. turnovers. Control the Control ball. The ball. Yeah. Yeah, all yeah. kinds of great principles there. Okay. Now when we get to this this. Which way? Yeah. Oh, no, I, no. What are some godly principles that are given? What are some godly principles? In fact, there's two books, one in the New Testament, one in the Old Testament, and that's what the whole book's about. The uh, saying that we should love our wife as Christ loves the church, not a rule, or that a principle? Almost both. It's, yeah, it, it hits almost on both of those. I mean, it's, a, it's definitely a principle that I think you try to live by. I don't think I perfectly have manifested that at all for the consequences that come out of that. But it's almost like a, it is almost a command to husbands. It's a sacrificial call to each of us. So I would say I'd put it actually, I would put that under a, uh, I put that under law. 
I don't know about you, if you'd put that under law or not. But, uh, I'm still thinking on that one. To love, to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it, I, I'll take that yeah, as, a, as an imperative. What about some principles? What about the book of Proverbs? What do we call it? What do we call the book of Proverbs? What kind of literature? Wisdom? Yeah. Here's wise ways to live. You can choose to uh, take my money and I can invest it. I can uh, I can give it to the, the, the lender or I can not give it to the lender and keep and not have that money in, in a sense over here in, in credit, but I can keep it as in a cash flow in the black. Okay, It's a principle. It's true. Do you have to do it? No. If, if you defy it, is there going to be consequences? Yeah. There's going to be different. Yeah. My, my parents, again, Boilermakers, a Boilermaker dad, my mom, my mom didn't work. And so they eventually said this before Jim, Jim, Ramsey ever came, uh, Dave Ramsey ever came along. I said, you know what? We just know that if we give our money and we go live beyond our means, we're going to be a slave to the lender. We just know that. It says in Scripture. And so we believe that's true. So what we're going to do is we're going to live under under our means, okay, so that we can then at that point come out from, out from underneath and then be able to give to people. My parents said 10% is non-negotiable in terms of tithe. But what they started doing was they started raising up how much they had to give, and they started saying, hey, can next year let's shoot for 10.5%. And let's shoot for 11%. Uh, my parents bought their cars, bought their house with cash. Pretty unbelievable. Boilermaker, when they did those things because they said these are principles that we believe are true. They have good consequences. They're wise to do in life. And because they're wise, we're going to trust God on that, and we're going to do it that way. And so they put four boys through private schools. Uh, they, they lived with no debt. It was just amazing. My mom and dad have been all over the world doing missionary work. They've been able to give to all kinds of people in regards to get off of a motor maker's salary. And so the idea of principles, again, are wise ways to live. The book of James in the New Testament. When you look at that, you go, gossip? Not gossip? Hmm. I think it would be wise not to gossip. In fact, there's going to be consequences if you do do that. Can you, can, you, can you tell someone a story? I get away with it, maybe even. But in terms of being able to be a gossip, then there's a principle, don't, don't tell a story that's not yours. That's not your story. So, does that, does, does that make sense to y'all? That, that any man is going to be disqualified from being a godly man if they violate these things right here. So it's, I had lunch with a guy earlier this week, and he said, well, well my, dad, my dad was a great dad. And then as he started telling me the story, they moved from California to Texas, and four months later, now he's like 13, 14 years old. He's got three other brothers, or two other brothers, or three, three sons. Literally four months later, dad hops up and leaves. He leaves work in the city and heads out. And, but he had told me my dad was a great dad. And I stopped him and I said, I said, wait a minute. You're telling me your dad's a great dad, but he disappeared when you were 13. Got another lady on the side, all this, and you're telling me he's a great dad. He violated these things here. Probably not a, he, he might have been a good playmate with his sons, or a happy, funny dad, or something like that, but we wouldn't call him a great dad in the biblical sense of the word great. These things discredit us as men, and we can look, we can look at our society, it doesn't matter how little or how much money we make, whether we're white collar, blue collar, or no collar, 
men that violate these things ultimately get discredited from the role of a man. To be able to servant, lead, country, and everything else. Principles are things that, they're things that I would suggest you follow God's principles. Uh, be slow to anger and quick to forgive. Listen to understand. I mean, these, these are things that are in Scripture, they're in Proverbs. And we need to be careful because this is what will separate a, a good man from a great man. So the Roger Bridgewaters, if you know, do you all know who Roger is? I don't know if you do or not. Bill Neighbors, Bob Jackson. You know, th th these are men that, that I know that they have the moral backbone here. But this is like the baseline qualification. I mean, I can't brag that I didn't murder someone today, and I didn't rape anyone today. I'm a great man. I didn't murder or rape anyone today. No, that didn't make me a great man. That kept me from being disqualified. What might make me a great man is that I was a leader today for something more noble than my own bottom line. Does that make sense? So those two things come together. On top of that, then, on top of that, we're going to put the roles of a man. We've mentioned some of them already. Uh, you mentioned a, a provider, right? We're going to put the roles of a man on top of that, that those are the responsibilities we accept as men from God, and as we live them out in faith to Him, with these things undergirding all of it, we will begin to experience the blessings in life. We will begin to create a legacy in the lives of other men and in the lives of other kids. It doesn't have to be our kids. We don't even have to be married for this to happen. Jesus was never married. Paul, you know, you look at men of faith in history, some were married, some weren't. Some had kids, some didn't. But these were the things that they were living out, and across the board, it doesn't matter where you are, whether you're in prison or you're in a pulpit, you can be a great man if those things are intact. Now, on top, of, on top of these things, you would put personalities, spiritual gifts, and I would probably flip-flop those. Preferences. What happens oftentimes in this is we'll flip-flop this whole chart upside down. And we'll live by our preferences first. This is what I prefer. This is what I like. This is what I want. Those are preferences. And we put those as kind of the, the top deal. We may only invert part of this, though. We may say, okay, I agree to this, but not invert. So, yeah, okay, we have, we're qualified who will invert, suddenly become a demanding man, want what we want, when we want it, uh, do all those things. And so oftentimes we'll invert these kind of things. Now, the reason this is important is a lot of times we can look at, we can look at something like that and say, well, there's like a, God's got this cookie cutter and he's just stamping out Christian men and this is what they all look like. There is a common foundation for every godly men. And this is it. The rules and laws of God, the principles and precepts of God, and then the roles of a man. We don't all have to look the same. In fact, we can all be uniquely, radically different in different careers, different hobbies and interests, 
different styles of relating to people because we do have different personalities, gifts, preferences, and passions. And God does not eradicate that. He doesn't change those things. So the fact that uh, some of you in here love football and some of you in here love spreadsheets doesn't make one or the other any more godly. And so keeping this balanced is, is what Don was talking about, is the priority starts here. And often, unfortunately, in our society, we begin with this question. We start up here. And we make that the bedrock of your life. You do what you want to do. You do what you feel like doing. And if I have time for God, or if I have time for this, then I'll, I'll, I may put it in my life, and yeah. then it becomes secondary. And that's not natural. The reason I'm saying that is I've got, I've got four kids, every one of them, and then my son, I'll pick on him for a minute because he's a lot like I was, and he'll probably end up, I hope, you know, doing more like me in some way, that he would love God and follow after God. But if he doesn't want to obey, if there's something, if you ask him to do something and he wants to do it, he'll, he'll let you know, Dad, I'm obeying you. And he'll... He'll do it. So if I'm like, you know, hey, go and, go and just get some ice cream. Just get some ice cream and just shove your face in and eat it. Dad, I, I'm going to obey you. And he'll get it and, you know, he'll crank it up. If I were to say, hey, hey Luke, I, I think we've had enough junk all day long. We're not going to get dessert today. Well, now we've got an issue because he doesn't want to obey. Because these things are coming in conflict with this. You have to train a young boy to submit his passions to the things of God. There's a verse. It says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will do what? He will lift you up. Someone turn to James 4, 10, because that's a verse that I think is a... Uh... What inverts these, he's a, he a, is that word called pride. And so let's look at what the Bible says in terms of what keeps this in the right priority. What inverts this is a thing called pride. And uh, Aaron, if, you, if you've got it there, just read out real loud because we got like a huge air handler. Ah! Yeah, James 4.10. I hope. That's yeah, it. humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and you will exalt Okay. Again, Don mentioned that, that Proverbs is very, is, is Old Testament wisdom literature and James has a lot of proverbial wisdom in it. And that's huge. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. And so I think what Don was saying, and what we want to say is the foundational heart of a godly man is going to have to be humility. And so David, you you mentioned a word earlier. Yeah, did y'all hear what, when, when I said within that three-year window of your life that you experienced the most change in, what brought the change? And David said, brokenness. And so don't, don't discount the dark days of your life. Don't waste them. Don't let God waste them. He's not going to. He'll redeem it. But that brokenness can bring us to a point of humility where we can then become a man that's rooted and grounded in the rules of God, the principles of God, the roles of a man. And he doesn't discount our preferences, our personality, and all of that. Does that make sense, that image? We're gonna we're gonna pull back, we'll come back to that often, this yeah. idea. Let's go, let's deal now with just some principles right now yeah. before we get to these roles. So let's go to some principles that we have. The uh, and we go quest for authentic manhood, which is if you've not gone through quest yet, Eric, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute, but if you're not through quest, I would recommend is go to unpackage and go to go through a lot deeper into what we're going to deal with in terms of 
how do you express this, how do you deal with those things. And so uh, here's a definition by Robert Lewis, that for an authentic manhood, then that we reject passivity, that we accept responsibility, that we live courageously, lead courageously, and that we'd expect God's greater, uh, God's greater reward, which is a heaven reward, which is something beyond just something we can gain for ourselves. So reject passivity. We accept responsibility. We lead courageously, and we accept God's greater reward. Just think how counter that is to a lot of what we see in our own lives and what we see in other men's lives. Have they led courageously? Have they uh, looked for a greater reward? Have they not lived for the, for the moment, but have they lived for something beyond themselves? Have they lived for the greater purpose, or have they lived for the temporal purpose? Have they lived for something that can be burned up and gone, or have they lived for something that will last forever? And so when we see those things, then oftentimes we realize that that definition for authentic manhood, or what it looks like to be a godly man, really hits us hard. And we say, you know what? That may be even impossible to live. Just possible. That's maybe impossible to live. We can come close maybe. We can try a lot really hard. But possibly something greater in ourselves even do that. And so this idea of the laws and principles and roles of man really require great, something greater than ourselves for those things to be carried out. And that is not just other men. That is other men. That's the body of Christ. But it's also, we believe, God's spirit that, live, that will indwell us at the point of salvation. And we ask Christ to come into us and say, you do something greater we could have done on our own. And will you help us live, live courageously? Will you help us reject passivity? God, would you help me to lead courageously? Would you help me to live for something greater, a greater reward and not a temporal reward? And so we look at these things here, and these things are often in humility and given to God and say, God, could you do this in my life and do something greater than I could have done myself? And so that definition, we believe, is a great definition for authentic manhood. Yeah, I think you were charged. You talked about it being inverted. Oftentimes. A lot of times. And I think that, personally, when you put it all together, I think, to me, I think God uses brokenness to generate humility to, to help you re -invert. Yeah, James chapter 1 says that, uh, consider in various trials, consider pure joy, because what God's going to do in us is give us endurance, probably so this can all get reconfigured. Right. Yeah? If we lack wisdom on how to do that, then He gives it to us generously. But oftentimes, we look at a trial or a problem or a difficulty, and we look at that not as something that God can use in a great way. Yeah, and, and most men can't get to that point to get to these bottom three boxes because of back to pride and stereotypes and poor modeling. We're hung up in that top, those top two boxes. Yeah. And it usually, not always, but I think generally takes some traumatic event, some level of brokenness, to get you to the humility where you can even think conceptually of those bottom three boxes. Yeah. yeah. That's what makes Jesus unbelievable. The King of Kings would humble himself and come to earth. It's unbelievable. Yeah, the a question for y'all to think through is, you know, these things are unique for you. Passions, preferences, your personality and all of that. Also your skill sets, what you're really good at and talented at. Why in the world do you think God has given you that unique perspective on life? That shouldn't be the driver. But when you bring that in line with, I now have a, I now understand my role and I'm, I'm trying to be obedient to God's word, these rules, God will begin to drive and hone and you will end up maybe in places you never imagined. But when you get there, there's a joy, there's a strength, there's a hope and an optimism. And I know for me, I'm living in the flesh when I grow discouraged. 
and when I begin to grow and I feel like everything's coming down and I'm just stuck in a rut and this is how I am and I can't change and that's not from God. God doesn't speak words of death and damnation onto us. He speaks hope and change into us. It's real genuine hope and change and not anything you could vote in or vote out. It's what he does inside of us. And so I don't know where each of us have been, but if you've been at that spot, just understand humbly coming to God is that first step on the road for biblical manhood. And some of you are blessed maybe early in life to put your feet on that road, and others of you, you know, Mark, you said you were 28, or 26, or 28. 4 principles that we think and the first principle has 3 parts to it. Let's look at 4 principles that we believe are very important. When we say marriage, okay? Remember we're going to also be talking to us as individuals. So we're going to kind of explain that again. So we we'll use the word marriage that doesn't exclude if I'm not married, okay? We'll make sure we're, we're inclusive in regards to this. The guiding principle number 1. Uh, someone read Genesis 2:24. It's right there. This is 2:24. <coughs> For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Uh, so principle number one has three parts to it. Principle number one is perhaps one of the more challenging hurdles of us as men, all ages, and certainly is the process of leaving our parents. To leave literally means to forsake or abandon. Literally means to leave or forsaken. Uh, it means to cut a cord is another way it's seen in Scripture. Uh, it means to separate that, that rope that's there, to cut that cord, and to be no longer a part of, to be separate from. It's still, in a sense, a rope, but it's now two parts to that. And so we forsake and abandon. To leave your parents means that your relationship with your parents is radically changed, is what Wayne Mack calls it. Radically changed. It's altered completely. Leaving means also, though, that it's not just moving out from underneath their roof. It's not just a, a, a logistical kind of idea. But to leave parents requires us to leave authoritatively. They no longer hold authority over us. If we leave financially. We no longer are, in a sense, tied to them financially. We no longer have to go back and check that stuff out and make sure we kind of keep a little bit. And emotionally, that we are separate, that we are cut, that we start... They gave us authority, they would live under their authority, but we didn't lose authority. We just now, in a sense, have a, a separate authority. We didn't lose financially, separate, we're no longer finding. We separated that into two parts. Emotionally, we are now separated from those parts of it. If most men sever the authoritative and financial bonds with their parents fairly easily as they finish their education, find jobs, move to their own houses. However, it is estimated that 60% He's a few years old in terms of that, that statistic. I'd love to find out again. 60% of men do not cut emotional strings with the parents. 60%. If that is true, then 0% of those men and their marriages, if they are married, are becoming great men according to the principles God has established for them. 
Wow. So if 60% of men are struggling with separating themselves and leaving, separating themselves from parents, they don't feel unsafe. We, the way we call it is protracted adolescence. It's kind of like we never come out from underneath parents. We continue living as a child, even though physically we're now men. We now still live emotionally underneath that bondage, and we live that separate. So leaving should not be done hurtfully, even though pain may be involved. And even after a man leaves, a man is to honor his parents. So his idea of leaving is not just, I'm going to be tough and mean and mad, and you know, kind of deal. i got to separate myself. There's an honor that still goes on. Honor leaves actually means to lift up, to raise up, to place upon a mantle. And so it means to place them up. They have raised me. They did stuff to me when I could not do it myself. They gave me ideas and things. They may have been bad parents, but they still probably gave me some things I could not have done on my, on my own. But they, I should lift them up. I should honor my parents, but I am now separate from them. Several scriptures right there. 1 Timothy 5.8 If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he is denied of faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Leaving is not a geographical issue. It's not getting out from underneath the house, even though it may require a physical move to leave from that. It may, you may require that so that you can have that separation. You may need that, but it doesn't require that. Ironically, death to your parents does not change. Uh, it changes nothing. Leaving is a matter of the mind and the heart. It is a choice we make and must make. But it, your idea of that your parents changes and they die, you can still be emotional. Ted Turner is still, for many years, still trying to please his dad, who committed suicide, and he could never please as a man. And so continue doing that. Yeah, I was, was going to share, uh, back in 1994, I graduated grad school, and my parents, like, when I went to college, I was pre-med, and so my dad was really pumped about that, because doctors do what? Make money, you know? So my dad, you know, raised in the Depression, finances that are very important to him, hard work, good man, and that's an honorable profession. I get more and more into anatomy and stuff and realize I do not like uh, the idea of cutting on people. I'm not a cat fan. I just remember dissecting a cat and I was like, I don't like it. I'd rather kill it than help it and cut it. And so, and so I went and became health and physical education. Well, now the you earning never potential. Killed a cat, though. You, did, you never killed a cat. I might have swung him out of a window, no, but didn't never that. killed him. And if Pete is listening to this, uh, yeah, sorry about that. Okay, um, but. Uh, yeah, but for me, as far as uh, earning potential, it was way down. Health and physical education, you know, back in the 80s when I got out of college, it's like 15000 a year, 20000 a year compared to a doctor, which is four times that, you know, four times, five times that. And so for my dad, there's a disappointment. When I graduate from college, work for a while at Humana Hospital and exercise physiology, doing all right, and then I sense this call toward some form of ministry or something. So I go off to seminary. Well, my dad didn't like that because a ministry, that's, you're not even making your own money, it's other people's money being given to you, and that's, I graduate from that, and he had come to the point to realize that, hey, some ministers make a lot of money, and that's a pretty good profession. Our, our pastor makes a lot of money, so my son could make a lot of money, and that would be okay. Well, I'm at seminary, and I hear about a ministry called Dulos Ministries, which is where Don and I met. This is back in 1994. They're discipling people. Well, the way it's worked, the way it works is you go there, <laughs> you don't pay them, they don't pay you. And you're there for a year and you serve and you work and you're trained and you're discipled, but you're not making any money. So you have to ask people to raise support to do this. 
at that point, I look back on that as a time that I had to literally leave my, my parents. And it wasn't in a dishonoring way, but I remember my dad and I always got along. He had been disappointed, but it had never gone to a heated exchange. But on that day, I was getting ready to leave, and very much my dad was there, and he was angry at me. I can't understand why you'd go and volunteer. You've done this, you've done this, you've done this, you're smart, you could do all this stuff. And I, I told him, I said, Dad, I love you. I said, I hope you know I've always honored you. I've tried to respect you. But at the end of my life, I will not stand before you and give an account. I will stand before God. And I said, I hope that at some point you come to understand that, that I'm not trying to dishonor you, but I'm trying to honor God more than you. And I said, you've raised me to try to do that, so I'm going to try to do that. Well, that didn't go super well, okay? We didn't talk. I headed out. Four months later, I got a letter from him, and I should have brought it to let, let you read it. Out of that, it broke my dad's heart. He came to reconfess Christ as his Lord. He wrote me a long letter about what success is, and that he had been wrong about his definition of success, that it wasn't monetary, it was character and obedience to God first, and whatever else happened, that would be in God's hands. But that he said, in my eyes, you're a success. Love, Dad. And when I got that letter, because I'd never had a walk away and we're not together on what I'm doing and what's going on, but I had to leave at that point. And I think, I look back at that as one of the biggest turning points in my life. It wasn't, it wasn't over anything dramatic in, in some ways, but it was about my whole life, the rest of my life. We've got a very healthy, good relationship now. But, but you would have known it on that <laughs> on a Saturday afternoon when I'm packing up my car and heading out, and we have that exchange in the, you know, in the house in front of my mom. And so if I'm, you, I'm sharing if that. If you don't leave, what we call that is emotional bondage. It's mm -hmm. the idea that at that point that we have not left. It's the absence of leaving, so to speak. And what it creates is an, an emotional bondage. It is one of the biggest hindrances, I believe. Again, it's not geographical, it's not just financial, but it is a warning sign that there, there's something still going on within me. A man will never be appropriately provider for his family if he is hindered by emotional bondage or the inability, the inability to leave his father either physically or, or family, either physically or emotionally. If he had the inability to leave his family either physically or emotionally, the process a man goes through to becoming emotionally free is called unpacking. It's the idea of getting out. Here's who I am. God, here's who I am. Take me as, as I am. Here, here I am. And you give that to him. You do that in a sense also with your father. Yeah, Dad, I know I'm not all that you may want me to be. I may not, but God, but Dad, i got to leave. You've taught me all you can. I have to leave now and continue on in terms of this, this path. My dad said it this way. Don, I'm not your Holy Spirit. I trust your decision you make. That's how he did it. Each one of us boys that way. We went off to college. We'd ask him a question. He said, I'm not your Holy Spirit. We said, I understand. You, I trust you, this, the, uh, the decision you make. What he was saying was, I bless you. I, I release you. I let you now, before God, make those decisions. And so what he was doing was blessing me. There's a little test we give right there. Like uh, You don't have to write down. They might want to take it later. It might be well, as we talked about this, a lot of guys, this can really hit kind of pretty hard. And there's, so there's a test. Do you act differently when you are at home or with your family than when you are, are, are at work or church? You'd answer that yes or no. Do you stay in regular contact with your family? 
Yes or no? After conversation with your parents, do you feel anger or frustration? You often say, the person reminds me of my father or mother and become angry. You tend to perform activities just so your parents would be proud. If you answer no to all those except number two and you write a yes to number two, then those, and if you answer three out of five of those potentially with, with a no or number two a yes, then potentially there's probably some areas in which I'd say, I'd sit down with a good friend. I'd sit down with a godly counselor. I'd sit down and say, hey, I kind of did this thing and I walked away and I really struggled with this. I don't know why. It's just I, I know I'm, I'm old enough to maybe not, but I, I just got to sit down and walk through this. There may be an area in which that still is a hindrance. There may be, in, in that, again, the person you're trying to please may be dead. They may not even be there any longer. They may not, but they haunt you from the grave still, in which you still feel captured. And so that idea of unpacking and working through that and saying, okay, I am my own man. This is where I am. God, would you touch me and use me as a man and do something different radically in my life? That emotional bondage, that hindrance, that absence of leaving, will cause a, a immaturity to stay in your life. It will cause you, in a sense, to be emasculated as a man. I can't get any more graphic than that. It's tough, it's tough though. I have a problem with that. Like my mom and dad, you know, they weren't really, even though they're not practicing Catholics, I was very close to them. I lived with them until 26. My wife and we lived for eight months on their roof. They were young. And my mom, my mom, my father was very quiet at the time. My mom ruled the family. She was the, she, you know, my just, yeah, my father was just there. My mom ruled. And, and my mom almost destroyed our, my, me and my wife's relationship. She was, because I was so family drawn, she expected me as the more successful of my four brothers at the time to support them because they weren't managing their money right. And they were just living on credit. And my mom would expect me to support them as I'm trying to raise my three, four kids. And my wife, it was just a, a very bad bond. And I kept on trying to get my other brothers. I was like the both born of the family. So I was trying to raise my family and Told my mom and dad, take them to the grocery store, give them money behind my wife's back. Mm. Eventually, it almost broke, it almost destroyed us. And then two years ago, after I went through some health problems, I was going through a little, little health problems and all that stuff, I just cut the cord. I had to cut it. Eventually, I had to cut it for good because I, I prayed about it. It was like, it's time for me to walk away. And I did. It's still, it's still tough because I haven't talked to him for almost two years. So, it's some people, it's tough to do that, but when you do do it, it that sometimes makes, makes your marriage stronger. And it was kind of destroying my marriage for a while. Every guy's response may be different. Yeah, you know, yeah. many of us have those have had that wound. I was going to say, if if you feel like, hey, this whole this whole conversation on the, the leaving, the emotional bondage, and all of that, there is a class we have at the church. We we do it typically in the fall. It's called a quest for authentic manhood. Uh, there are some real definite, definitive steps of action that you can take. Uh, I also recommend uh, counseling. Uh, there's, there's no doubt in my mind uh, there is a stigma associated with counseling when I was growing up. Uh, today, I think that stigma is pretty well gone. We understand that just as I might need a coach to get me ready for the marathon, I may need a coach to get me ready for marriage or get me a coach to get me ready for you know becoming a, a more effective manager of people in the marketplace or a more effective uh, relater to my wife or to to my children and so there, there's no shame in that my wife and I've gone through counseling I've gone through counseling it's it's not God's super silver bullet I just want to encourage you that the quest for authentic manhood when it comes around if you see that and you well what is that I'm just telling you if you if that that conversation just rang some bells for you 
that would be a very healthy thing to get into with some other men because I don't think it's... I just get them as accountability partners and that way I don't have to pay for it. That's why I just find a counselor. Right. There's a counselor. Yeah, that's what I always do. That's kind of the sneaky way of getting around paying them. So well, well, you have to pay for your counsel that way. Yeah, the, the, the purpose of leaving is, is almost like plow. It's almost like plowing a film. I'm going to move on on that. Sorry. Is that one of my friends? No. Okay. Um, you can help me a lot. Oh, thank you so much. I have, I have a question yeah. before we leave this. Speaking of leaving, I know you can't answer this in full, like, with full clarity. Like, what's a, what, is it, what does it look like? And when, is it, when do you leave or when do you start to leave with if you're 26 if you're 30 and you're single is it okay to live with your parents or is it is it 16 or is it i mean i know it's case to case and it just really depends if you have godly parents when do you leave if you have ungodly parents when do you leave what about it for a father if they're still paying for it and that is your decision for them to pay for instance i believe in college because many of us still live college and they are paying for an aspect that I still think we're under our parents' authority. Right. When we step out from underneath that financial responsibility, which I think should be at least college for anyone, I, yeah, I'm not trying to put, I'm not saying, but I believe at that point, if they have financial responsibility, you've accepted that responsibility, then I believe at that point you're still under the authority. Once you step out from underneath that, just general, then I think at that point you should then make sure that you're, you have left. Okay. So, something that I see happen a ton, and, and my dad did that when I was a freshman in college, even though he was paying for college. My dad did that in my life as a freshman in college, when I was 18, when he did that for me. He released me and said, I, I trust your decisions. He had some, in terms of school decisions, he made for me, but the rest of the decisions I did, whether I played baseball, whether I did other things, there was a decision I made at that point. A way, a way of looking at that is, if you're, let's just say that you're 25 and you're living at home, and your parents are like, you're not paying rent, you're doing nothing, but you're blowing money, and you're living a lifestyle that is very self-focused, and your passions, your preferences, and all that, that, that's growing, and you're not growing in these areas, I would say you're in an unhealthy situation because your parents are enabling you to stay like a teenager. A teenager is when we ought to be getting our butt spanked because we're not being balanced and we're not making wise choices and there are consequences and so we get a DUI or we, you know, we have an accident or we, we have issues that come up. We should be learning and we should be able to move. When we hit college, we really do and, and our society sort of delayed that or protracted that experience where we allow men that are biologically old enough to be a man and they, they're wise enough, smart enough, strong enough, we allow them to live out of these two areas until they're 35 or 40. If, if so, only you can answer that. But but if your parents are enabling you to live just in the passion preference realm of life, and you're not having to make hard decisions about where this dollar goes and how do I tithe when I feel like I don't have any money to, to if you're not suffering and struggling through that, you're going to end up being almost like the, the the butterfly that someone cuts out of the cocoon and never can fly on its own. And so there is a sense of you need to be free and struggle because that will forge your character. You'll understand real quickly priorities, and that's the body of Christ where we all come in together. Yeah, hopefully, ideally. Yeah. Kirk? Uh, I've got a question in, in relation to uh, the intended perform activities just so the parents would be done. I mean, I, I can remember, uh, and, and this would be in relation to maybe sports, right? I used to run or run. And 
run that way is bad. And so, you know, I've got it. I, it's, it's, that's always been in my head. And, and it's always, I've used it, you know, that's one thing that, that I, I guess I will never forget because it drives And, you know, I don't know, the, you know, their mouth is seized, but it, it just, you know, for me, it was kind of a, it, it, I don't know if it kind of, I, if I felt like it was in their brains, but it, that was always in the back of my head. Um, that thought, and so I kind of used it for motivation, and I'm, I'm, I'm usually never really kind of satisfied, you know, in, in that respect, as far as, you know, I can't say it in other things, but it still kind of drives me. And, you think that's, a, that's in a good way? I, I used it as motivation yeah. for me, and, but also I don't, I don't What gets that out of our head is that it's biblically a thing called forgiveness. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is setting free the person who has held us in bondage. So if we're in emotional bondage, we set free the person who has placed us in that bondage. That's called forgiveness. That has been paid by the price of Christ on the cross. And that's where our forgiveness goes to. And so that forgiveness that we need, not that we forget, and God has given us a, a memory so that we will not return back to those things that were not profitable, we were not godly. So the idea of forgiveness is God allowing us to release the person who has held us in bondage or held us captive. And so forgiveness is the great tool of dealing with uh, emotional bondage. For many of us, this, this hits hard, okay? It just hits us hard. Because we feel that. We may feel society even holds us this way. Maybe no individual, but society. We may feel religion has done that to us. We may, there may be broader uh, pictures of this in terms of wholeness. Let's talk about the second principle because it continues on. And I think, it, it, again, don't skip this. We, put, we, we stay on this for a little while because it's, it hits a lot of men as we talk about it every time. Yeah, I was just going to say, leaving is not an end unto itself. It's almost like you, you take a plow and you're in the field and you're, you're, you're plowing up the ground to get it ready for something. And the next two principles are what you're getting it ready for. And so you're plowing the field, that's leaving. You're, you're, you're making way for something else to come in. And what comes in now is called cleaving. In there, it's, it's to cleave, it means to weave together. It's like a vine. Two vines weaving around a solid base. Examples of that, if you grew up in the southeast, you probably saw kudzu that was brought in by TVA in the 1930s to keep soil erosion from happening because it didn't have any natural known things that would kill it. And it would weave around trees, giant trees that would cover. Well, that's the idea of, of, of literally, literally cleaving is weaving around. In creation account, man gets one verse and the woman gets six verses. And men are, in, in many ways, basic and simple, and women are definitely finely tuned. Two cars, one is functional, truck, and one is, you know, a little bit more performance, if you little Fiat, fix it again, Tony. A little, a little something that's really <laughs> kind of fun. Yeah, has right it, so it's, but they still are the same, and so in a sense, in the idea of they still need support of one another to function together, okay? So they need both of those pieces together. 
before the uh, before the fall, God said it's not good that man is alone. Every other animal had 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 partners and everything else going on. He looked at man and said, "Good, good, 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 good." I noticed something. Adam's alone. It is not good that man is alone. Reread Genesis one, two, and three, and you're going to see this this theme of everything is good in creation until Adam's created alone. And if you miss that, then you miss the importance of leaving. It's not leaving to be alone to stay alone. There's going to be something coming in here. And so for, for Adam, the woman is critically valuable to him. So if you think about it, you know, why did Adam have to check out all the animals? I mean, literally God brought every animal before Adam, and God could have named every one of them, but he gave Adam a creative leadership authority over all the animals. So Adam's exercising authority when he's naming whatever, however he came up with giraffe or whatever, you know. But, but he exercised creative authority in that. Uh, Genesis 2, I don't know if we have time to, to read it. We've got about 15 minutes. We're good? So Genesis 2, 19 through 20, it's, it's listed there in the, uh, in the guide. It says, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found, which is huge. So, so some ideas here. Don, you want to grab on these? Yeah, when the, when the friction comes, then you have this idea of why in the world would this be in Scripture? Why in the world does he have to do this? And I think it's critical for us men that when friction came, Adam would be reminded there is no one better, uh, no better choice for him. There is no better choice. Again, it's not Steve and Steve. It's man and a woman. If there is, if there's something unique and special about that. It's not animal and, and man. It is man and woman. So man chose the woman. He looked at her and goes, wow, what did that? That is uniquely different. That draws me to it. And so man is cho chose. So this idea is not only is it the best, we've also made the decision and we have chose that. But also, the man is, is made from inert dirt. We're not too fancy, but we work. So a woman brings in a sin, adds to or is taken out of life. A woman adds to life. Taken out of, man is taken. A uh, uh, woman is made from or out of life. Thus, the woman adds to life. So Adam is made, and woman is taken from him. She adds to a life. There is something unique about a man and a woman's relationship that adds to us as men. Let me say it another way. There is something unique about a woman that when a man comes into her life, it adds to her. There is something about that that makes a connection point. Don't know how, don't know why, just there's something unique about it. It's not the same. And again, you look at society, trying to take it down. Men and women are the same. I, I, I don't know. When I was little, I sure thought the girls had cooties. They sure seemed different to me. I'm not sure why. They sure acted different than me. They just, just grew that way. They were just that way. They were different than me. And so there's something uniquely different about that. And so this idea of cleaving is that we cleave with something that adds to us. That it adds, in a sense, a finer part. Adds something creative to us. Gives us something we would not have just on our own. And so this idea of purpose of leaving and the purpose of cleaving then is this idea of becoming one. There's something then greater that would be added to that. So the becoming one. Go ahead. 
Are we on? Yeah. So in, in marriage, you know, becoming one is seen as like a really fundamental, basic level there of consummation in the marriage. It's in, in Scripture when it says they, they became one or they knew each other. The biblical word to know is really this idea of consummation of the marriage, of sex, of that intimacy. But what we recognize also is similar to like a baptism is an outward physical expression of an inner relationship that's fashioned deeply with God. And my son and I are having this conversation right now. He asked me the other night, Dad, if I die and I'm not baptized, but Jesus is my Lord, do I go to hell? He was just asking me that. I haven't taught him that. I haven't said that, but just going through Scripture and reading. And I was like, now Luke, if, if Christ is your Lord, baptism will result from that. You'll obey Him and follow Him in that, but in no way is your salvation hinging on that. Your salvation is hinging on whether or not you've kneeled down before Christ and said, it's, it's you that I follow. It's your rules and laws and principles that are going to guide me, as opposed to, I'm going to serve my own passions and my own preferences. And so in this, in my wife and I, our physical intimacy is a physical expression of our emotional, spiritual oneness. Does that make sense? It's becoming one for us is an outgrowth of a heart that is emotionally free. It's not in bondage anymore because I've left my mom and dad. That doesn't mean I don't talk to them, I don't love them, or I don't honor them. What it means is I've, I've allowed myself to become free emotionally that I might then join with her and out of that, then, we have the expression of becoming one in there. Now, Paul hits it really hard in 2 Corinthians because he talks about there is a spiritual dimension of a relationship. And so he says, hey, do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. He just calls it straight out. And he says, listen, you got no business, unbeliever and believer, coming together in marriage because Paul recognized that oneness is going to destroy you. It's not going to, it's not going to make you a better man. It's going to war against your very soul. And that oneness will not yield the fruit of a godly life. It'll actually become a contentious spot for you. I would say in this, a couple of a couple of things we gave, uh, Don and I were talking about this today, and we're like, if if a lady, a single lady came to Don or, or came to me and were like, hey, I'm, a guy is pretty serious with me and we're dating. We've been dating for a while and I think he's sort of, you know, looking at rings. That's what my girlfriend told me. And, you know, I just don't know about should I say yes if he asks or not. I'm praying about it. I just don't know. What, how, how should I know? How would I know? In that whole conversation there, there are a lot of questions we'd ask, but I think at the heart of it, one of the things would be is, has he shown the ability to leave his family of origin, leave his mom and dad, emotionally, financially, physically? And the second deal is, has he shown the capacity through his relationships, friendships in the body of Christ, service in the church? Has he shown the ability, in a very real sense, to cleave to other people relationally in a healthy, godly way? And so... In creation, marriage and cleaving and becoming one all hit at one time. In the New Testament, we actually first discover as a man in the body of Christ how to cleave. And we become one spiritually in the body of Christ before we ever get married. 
And so that's a, that's a role we have to learn early is before we're ever married, we're learning how to cleave to brothers and sisters in Christ in a healthy way. And then serving in the body of Christ helps us become one in that. I don't know that, I, I probably confused you a little bit. Does that make sense or not? Look down here in your notes, it says that in the creative order, this becoming one, marriage, married precede the body of Christ. And the Christian post-Christ, the church preceded marriage. In the body of Christ, we first find our place as a man in the body of God, in the, in the church. See that? So the practice of this does not wait upon whether I'm married yet or not. Okay? This practice right here happens as a man, not as a husband, not as a father. It happens as a man. So this process of leaving... And then who do we cleave to? We leave our selfishness. We cleave to Christ. We become one in Christ. In Christ we are, have I connected to Christ? Am I cleaving? Am I trusting Him? And am I relying upon Him? Have I, have I found Him to be my satisfaction? Have I found Him to fulfill all that I need? Have I found Him to be the relationship? And so this here is not a, a wait until I get married to do. It's not like I hurry up, hurry up, make this go on. I do these things here as a man. Now, if you're married, you do these things as a man. This is part of your principle that you essentially say, I leave, I cleave, I become one. Now, it's my job then at that point. In all other relationships, I have left. I've seen him only as a distant second. I now find my primary person, the primary cleaving, the primary emotional connection is going to be made with this wife. Earthly. It is a mystery of how this is a representation of Christ in the church. Is what Paul says in chapter 5 of, of Ephesians. And so this mystery then, I then lead all other relationships, kind of consider it second. This also means with children. What happens oftentimes is we want to bring children into this, and we want to make them, in a sense, the family. The family is God, man, and woman. The children are welcome additions to. We model that for them so that they then can be a part of, of seeing that, experiencing that, feeling that, so they can start their own family. So that can have, they can say, man, this oneness I have with Christ, this connection I have with this. I saw that in mom and dad. I saw that as a trusted Christ. I saw that in their relationship and how to express themselves in relationship. And now I get to do that in my own marriage because I'm left. I have now cleaved to this one, and now I have become one with them. I have connected emotionally and physically and, and uh, practically in all, every way. I make that connection. So this part right here, this purpose of leaving, cleaving, becoming one, is not something. So there is a major importance, though, in marriage. So then you take these ideas, you take this into marriage, and you say, oh, yeah. So this means that children don't dominate. Here's how I express it in my family. Mommy sits in the front seat with Daddy. Daughter, sons... You are welcome addition, but mama's the queen. You're the prince and the princesses. That's what you are. You get to see the queen and the king and how they act. We want you one day to be king and queen of your home. We want that to happen. We want you to trust and love one another for that to happen. We want to show that mama sits in front. She's the queen. She's the one who has daddy's king. You may treat your mom that way, but you will not treat my wife that way. You will not treat my bride that way. She holds a, a, a higher up, a further position than my children. She is not secondary in serving my kids. She is the one. She is my family, and she's a welcome addition. Then when family kids leave, wow, what a blessing. 
We have blessed them. They now have an established home of their own, and we get to bring those families back together and get to do all that. <laughs> it works. In God's created order, there is a plan to all that in which you say, I can do this with the body of Christ. I can express this and feel this. Eric uh, makes a great point with how a relationship with men can have actually foster this oneness also. We're, we're, we're real short on time. So yeah. just write down John 17, 20 to 26. It's the longest prayer that Christ ever prayed as far as that we have, quote, record of. It's called the high priestly prayer. It was before he went to the cross. And in John 17... Verse 20, he says, My prayer is not for them alone. That's his disciples that were currently living with him right then. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That would be you and me. We believe through the testimony of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You know, We believe in that. And here it is, that all of them may be one. In other words, there was a becoming one that in the body of Christ, Christ ordained before marriage doesn't matter if you're married or not. You can become one in the body of Christ. And if you can't do that, marriage is going to be really rough. Because the only way you can do it in the body of Christ is truly to have a sacrificial love for people that don't have a lot to give you sometimes. And so for men, learning how to, to listen to another man, to find out what his needs are, to pray for another man, to fight for another man, that they might, you know, maybe they're discouraged about their job situation. And you, you recognize that. Well, what you do with that is either going to build that guy up and you're, you're like, we're becoming brothers in Christ. You know, we're strengthening each other. Well, that's what marriage is to be on steroids. So you've got to practice it in your man-to-man friendships without any of the tangible benefits that anything else like a marriage would bring you. You just have a friendship. And it's, if you can do that in a friendship with a man that when you add the blessings of that you know, relationship with a lady and the, the, the blessings of what that brings, the physical, the emotional, and all of that, it, it's really like the icing on a cake. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture then of Christ in the church. But we've got to learn that long before we get to an altar. And we do. And, and if you don't, it's really hard. I mean, the first years of marriage, you can do great damage in your marriage. And, and marriages end within that season as well because men didn't learn how before to do this. Let me finish two blanks. We'll stop at the importance in marriage. There are two blanks that I don't think I gave to you. <coughs> and it says, uh, the family is, is comprised of the husband, wife, and God. Then parents are to raise and prepare the children to leave and cleave to God and become one with their future spouse. So my goal is for them to leave and cleave and become one with God so they will have the opportunity to be able to do that with their future spouse. And that becomes the ideal of it. If that doesn't happen, Christ is greater. That, you didn't see that model, Christ is greater. The picture is seen all there in Scripture. So Scripture then becomes alive to us because, oh, that's what it looks like. Oh, that's why I'm in His Word. Let that become a part of it. We're going to stop right there and to, to be done in order. Let me uh, pray for us and... Uh, Eric and I will stay if you have additional questions. Father, thanks for your great love for us. You are awesome. You, uh, your plan was not in any way, of, uh, in a sense, thwarted by sin. You are greater than that. So we thank you that uh, in your plan that you gave us an uh, ability to restore relationship with you, that we can do that through salvation. And thus, as we restore that relationship, Father, then you also walk with us so we restore how we function in that, how we live that out, how we how we express that to one another. And so may we do that in a mighty way. 
Well, I pray for each of us as men. Father, I, I just truly believe that the way of the men is the way of the church, that as we are lifted up, as you raise us up, not because we raised ourselves up, but in humility as you raise us up, that as we lead appropriately, that at that point there is a great army, a great change that happens in society and happens in our church and happens in our world around us that we could not have done on our own. So, Father, we thank you for your order. We thank you for your plan. May we trust that. May we rely upon that. May we walk in that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.